internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, as always, we are here to brighten your day. We're here to anger your soul, and we're here to tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you had an idea for how to start off this episode. <laughs> so, uh, you know, before we got recording, my wife and I uh, ate breakfast and watched list articles on YouTube. Listicles, I don't know what else you would call them. We were watching Watch Mojo, and it was talking about... Um, like various movies that are so bad, but have one good thing about them. And okay. Without spoiling anything that, that took my brain down a rabbit hole. Like my brain tends to go of thinking about this, which makes me think about this, which makes me think about this. And then I was wondering, cause I don't know if we've ever discussed this, Alex, is there a movie that you have either seen or not seen, but it is a movie that like you saw the trailer for, or you heard about and you're like, this looks like it's going to be awful, but one particular aspect of it looks really hot, really enticing. And I'm going to see it for that. Hmm. So, um, I don't, I don't, Let's see. Andy, you were born in 92? Correct. Hmm. Okay, so you were nine when Swordfish came out. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I was just hitting puberty when Swordfish came out. Um, For those of you who don't know, Swordfish is a movie i think it came out in two, i'm googling it now 2001 sword fat swordfish is a like thriller action movie from 2001 um which like it had john travolta it had hugh jackman it had don Cheadle, and very famously it had halle berry sure swordfish is a god-awful movie <laughs> it's a shit movie there is exactly one reason to go see Swordfish. And and to be clear, the people who marketed Swordfish were okay with you going to see the movie because of this reason. And that is that there is a couple of scenes, and I literally mean like two scenes, wherein you see Halle Berry completely topless. Sure, sure. Not for any good reason, mind you. Like, I I remember one scene where she's literally just, like, reading by a pool and someone comes up and, like, talks to her and she just, like, is topless for no reason. And it's a bad movie, but I was 12 and wanted to see Halle Berry's breasts. So I watched Swordfish, (laughs) and I've never watched Swordfish again. Andy, you know this about me. I'm pretty good at remembering details of things that I've seen and read long ago. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the plot of Swordfish at all. I remember there's something about, like, computer viruses and cyber hacking. Hey, guys, I'm Hacker Man. Today I'm going to show you how to hack common household objects back or forward in time. And that's it. Like, that's all I know. Here's all I need to know. Do you remember what Halle Berry's breasts look like? I mean, yes. 
Okay. Yes, I do. But like, there's nothing else about that movie that's worthwhile. No, and that's I, that's fair. I've uh, I, I think I've seen the first half of Swordfish and was like, yeah, this is no, I'm I'm done. Yeah, no, I do remember. I didn't think this at the time, but I do remember seeing like YouTube trailers for what was that Jennifer Lawrence like spy sex movie? Red Sparrow. Red Sparrow. That's right. Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing the previews for that and just going. This looks like another swordfish. That's that's not my answer, but that's uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a lot of people's answers. I remember reading a review for that movie and it was like, basically, we made a Jennifer Lawrence soft bondage movie and then threw some like spy action in the interim. But it's just a lot of her like getting tortured, but it's sexy. And I was like, gross. Hmm. Uh, my answer, not, not just not to leave you on the spot, and this is the thing that thought of it. So the thing I was watching, it talked about um, uh, Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. And I thought about how I saw that movie in theaters with Mariah for the lulls. And then how I also saw Fifty Shades of Grey in theaters with my wife for the lulls on Valentine's Day even. Um, oh, and, and Fifty Shades of Grey isn't my answer. My answer is a movie called bad time at the El Royale, which stars Dakota Johnson. And there is a shot of her in that movie. Like just, it's just a shot of her from behind wearing some jeans. And I remember from the first time I saw that going, I've seen 50 shades of gray. And that is the best Dakota Johnson's ass has ever looked. I kind of want to see this movie. (laughs) And I haven't seen Bad Time at the El Royale yet. It, it it looks like if Quentin Tarantino was a struggling filmmaker today who was like getting his first shot, it, it, I think this movie looks like what he might have come up with. Um, you are not endearing it to me with that descriptor. No, I'm not trying to endear it. I've heard it's not good. It looked really good. Jeff Bridges plays like... He's he looks like a priest, but maybe he's a, a hitman. And like John Hamm is the manager of this hotel called the Bad Roy- the El Royale, but he's got like these secret rooms that can like see other people's suites. And maybe he's like a CIA guy. And and Chris Hemsworth comes in and he's not wearing a shirt and he's coming in from the rain and he's like some crazy psycho dude. It doesn't look great. I remember I showed you a movie called Free Fire. Um, mm. It gives me Free Fire vibes. Mm. It doesn't look great, but what does look great is Dakota Johnson's ass. And just to wrap this, just like it, we're we're both, uh, you know, straight men, and I don't want to lean into being lascivious in any way, shape, or form. And I feel the need to also comment. You, one of the earliest discussions I can ever remember having with you is about how good Gerard Butler's ass looked like in Three Hundred. So yes. just laying that yes. out there. I mean, that is that is very true. I don't know. I, I'm sitting. I'm sitting here, and I'm reminded of an interview that I once once watched with one of America's truly original creators, uh, a, a man by the name of Sir Mixalot. <laughs> uh, 
uh, and I just remember, I remember one part of this interview where he just flat out just said, for, and for those of you who don't know, Sir Mix-a-Lot, um, if you've ever heard a song that begins with the phrase, I like big butts and I cannot lie, that's Sir Mix-a-Lot. I remember an interview where he said, one ass made me write that song. One ass. Literally, he was like out at a club, which he did a lot. Like it wasn't like a particularly special night. And he saw one ass. He didn't even talk to this person. He didn't he didn't get within like 30 feet of this person. He saw this person and that night went home and wrote Baby Got Back. And I'm just thinking of what incredible things can come out of Dakota Johnson's ass <laughs> situation or, oh. or Gerard Butler's. Look, we got a friendship out of Gerard Butler's ass, so who's to say? <sighs> Thank you. Thank you for that horribly phrased uh, little anecdote there. <laughs> What great things filth. can come out of Dakota Johnson's ass, I wonder. You are filth. Ugh. Andrew, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're the one who said it, Alex. <laughs> mm. that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. Oh, uh, thank you for taking that journey with me. Hi, welcome to uh, Love-Hate Relationship. Uh, if you've made it this far, then um, by our arbitrary rules, you're not a douchebag. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> though, I gotta admit, this is my idea. This is one of the douchier douchebag buffers we've ever done. It's probably the douchiest, probably. I'm not gonna lie. So, joke's on us, I guess. Uh, but hi, welcome to Love-Hate Relationship. What we actually do on this podcast, every episode, is one of us takes a topic we love the other one then counterpoints with a completely different topic that we hate and we take your relationship questions and give our perfectly unqualified advice for them and uh alex i believe it is your turn for the love yo you know what it is and uh i got a big one for you so andy as ever i like to start off with a question and um i'm gonna try it and be very straightforward uh with this one uh my topic is going to be blues music, and I'm going to have a whole thing I'm going to talk about blues music with. But, Andy, to get started, when you think about the various diff- different, different, different different to, and then you think about the blues, what is it that you feel personally, you and your experience, um, distinguishes that genre in particular from ones like rock or metal or punk or even symphonic or jazz. How do you know the mm-hmm. blues when you hear it? Yeah, and this one threw me through a little bit of a loop because I think I I definitely know blues when I hear it. I think the distinguisher, for me at least, is tempo. Interesting, like, okay. Especially, especially with jazz, I feel like depending on how slow or fast you're going, you might be one or the other. Um, blues for me, I, I know that blues is like the progenitor of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you listen to Chuck Berry or like even like Aerosmith and especially early Aerosmith. It's very like, 
blues inspired and then turns into rock and roll. Um, jazz is a hard one. Cause I was sitting here the whole time thinking about the movie whiplash, which is <laughs> a jazz movie. Sure. Not a blues movie. Sure. And trying to then like determine, I think blues is soulful. It's, it's soulful plus maybe the instrument sensibilities of rock and roll, but it's, it's a lot more like laid back and mellow in, in my estimation. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So what makes blues different from like symphonic or classical music? Um, well, classical music it, that's where you really get into the the instrument sensibilities like blues can be done with a big cello as or you know a giant standing bass rather um but i feel like classical is just so much more i don't want to get into a trap of saying structured but maybe it it to the, into the uh, layman's ear seems a little more intentional and structured in how it's presented. I, I gotta admit, I'm I don't know how to vocalize the difference between symphonic music and blues. Um, I'm not, so I'm I'm not gonna lost there. I'm not gonna yell at you for not knowing like music <laughs> theory or like the history of like various forms of western music andy i promise i'm not going to like be mad at you or anything um i i although you know i didn't write this down but i am curious how like what is your experience of like proper blues music is it something you ever listened to or you ever heard growing up or i don't think i really yeah i don't i don't think i really have much of anything i don't think i listened to any blues growing up um it was very. Did you ever much... watch the Blues Brothers? I have watched the Blues Brothers, absolutely. Okay. Um, and even the Blues Brothers. Now that you say that, like, I I think I would struggle to say what in the Blues Brothers is actual blues and and what is actually rock and roll. No way. We're on a mission from God. Like, mm. I'm sitting here being like, okay, Johnny, be good, rock and roll. Um, Sinner Man on the line. Maybe that's blues. Mm-hmm. But no, I I will fully admit I I can speak to blues probably less than actually any other like musical genre. Like I can I can speak to jazz enough to know that there is a difference between like soft jazz and the blues, but mm-hmm. not much more beyond that. Okay, cool. So I'm re- I'm really interested to see how this conversation is going to go because normally when I bring musical topics, you usually have like some degree of background in it. Or in the case of like when we did Carly Rae Jepsen, I sent you a primer. So yeah. this one's going to be interesting. So I thank you for your answers. I'm really excited to see how this goes. Um, but to get into it, for all of the musical topics that we've brought to this podcast, you and me, because um, we've talked about, you know, acts like David Bowie or Coed in Cambria or Missy Elliott or Carly Rae Jepsen. 
I talked about a songwriter when I talked about Desmond Child. We've talk, I've talked about production stuff. Like, I talked about quantized drumming. Yeah. We've never sat down and discussed a whole-ass genre. Uh, no, not not in the love, at least. I, no. I still, oh, wait, that's true. You talked about math rock. I'm still not oh, sold on mathcore, but... How did I forget that we talked about math? Okay, never mind on that we've, front. We've but... done 54 of these, that's how... That's fair, but let's be. Let's also be fair. I think. I think no one will argue that mathcore and math rock are as big a genre as the blues, at least sure. historically. Sure. Um, you could possibly argue that it's more popular, uh, especially nowadays. But that's going to be besides the point. Um, blues music is extremely dear to me, and. Like with so many of the topics that I bring to this podcast, I'm a little annoyed that it doesn't really get the respect that I think it kind of rightly deserves for how important it is to contemporary music. Mm -hmm. And I want to highlight that because I like yelling about stuff. So the shortest background I can give to that genre, Andrew, um, the easiest primer that I can offer you and anyone else who's not really a blues aficionado is that uh, as a genre, the blues originated in the U.S. sometime in the late 19th century. Um, some people put it to like the 1870s. Some people put it as late as the 1890s. But the point is that by like the turn of the 20th century, it was an established genre in the communities that played it. And... Uh, those communities were the African-American communities of the South, post-Civil mm -hmm. War. Um, it drew influences in its development from spirituals, from work songs, from chants, from narrative ballads. And it developed in the juke joints of the South. So you had people basically, it's post-Civil War, technically... Slavery is not a thing anymore, but you still have a lot of people. You st well, no, you frankly still have a lot of people who were former slaves working basically the same exact land as either sharecroppers or contractors. And I didn't even call them contractors at the time, but basically conditions did not immediately improve post-Civil sure. War. I I again, this is well established. Um, so you had a lot of people who basically like worked worked farmland during the day and played music in the juke joints at night and it's music you dance to and it was music that you know reflected what they were what, what musical styles they were coming from what influences they had and what their experiences were mm -hmm. so the great migration happens in the 20th century and the people of the South start migrating throughout the country. So you get people migrating out to the Midwest, up to Chicago, out to um, out to New York City, out West. You get you get this great just spreading of people trying to escape the South, and they bring blues to those various areas. Um, you may at some points hear me, you know. Alternatively, in this conversation, maybe, maybe not, make references to Chicago blues versus, like, country blues or delta blues 
all of these are kind of regionally developed styles that are somewhat distinctive based on what they have. Um, I'll tell you right now, anybody who ever talks about Chicago blues, if you've ever thought about like Chicago blues is where they started electrifying it, started using electric guitars okay. in, in, in blues music that started in Chicago. That's, that's a lot of where your blues brothers songs come from. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the, I don't know how many minutes that was. That's like my two minutes on how, on what, on blues history. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on music theory because I feel like that's the quickest way to lose everybody. No, Alex, stop. Let's get into time signatures. <laughs> I'm not talking about no time signatures. Although I do like that you talked about tempo for blues because blues songs do tend to be a lot slower than some later stuff. You have um, no idea how validated I feel to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear boy. I love you so much. Um, no. Okay. Basically put, these are, these are the kinds of like ways you can usually tell a blues or a blues influenced song. Um, repeating rhythmic chord progressions of the one, four, and five chords. Um, what are the one, four, and five chords? You don't need to think about it very much, but if you've ever heard like a punk rocker talk about how all you need are three chords, or like a classic rocker talk, like someone someone who's an ACDC fan talking about how they only ever use like three chords per song, mm -hmm. those are the three chords. Sure. Depending on what key you're in, it's those three chords. Um, they used minor pentatonic melodies with tritones and non-diatonic sevenths. You don't need to worry about that. All you need to know is if you played these scales during, like, a Brahms symphony, it would sound weird and out of tune. But it works when you're, you know, in a sweaty-ass bar with, like, a guitar, a bass, and a drum kit. Like... It's not technically in tune according to classical or symphonic music, but it works. Um, call and response lyric structures, simple kind of offset rhythmic instrumentation, um, bass and drums, very important to the blues, uh, and very biting emotional leads. All of that might sound complicated, but it essentially boils down to three chords, some wrong notes that sound hella dark, a groove, and feeling. That's that's the blues. That's blues music. And I fucking love the simplicity of that. Sure, of course. I love the idea that, Andy, Andy I can hand you a guitar, teach you how to finger three chords on it, Play a couple of backing tracks and just like teach you how to strum on time. And you could be a blues backing rhythmic guitarist with that. You wouldn't be a great one yet. You'd have to practice, but I could do that with you. And assuming you don't have like severe spatial awareness issues, I could teach you that in less than an hour. Hmm. Okay. It is very very the the elements to blues are incredibly simple it's the kind of thing where it's simple to learn it's 
hell to master. It's almost impossible to master. Does that make sense? That does. And and you know the entire time I uh the entire time I was trying to answer your question, I really didn't want to get into a point, but without falling into a racial stereotype. When you say the blues and ask me what to think of, like what what does that conjure up in my mind? I think of some like 19 20 bar in Mississippi Mm. that is full of people who don't look like me playing respect the most, you know, emotional, like groove and feeling that you you mentioned saying that it's, it's dark groove and feeling. And it's like, yes, absolutely. And, and just the, the idea of, you know, sad, soulful, but really like hits you in the gull, hits you in the skull, like songs coming out of that bar I've pictured in my mind. That is what the blues are to me. I dig it. I do. You know, there's there's obviously the old stereotype that all blues songs are just like sad and melancholic and, you know, my baby left me on a Saturday night kind of stuff. And here's the thing. That is a lot of it. It really is. I'm not going to front. That's a lot of it. There are not a lot of happy blues songs. Part of the, like, I I also didn't put this in the notes, but this is just something I know. Part of the origin of the term, the blues, for this genre, no one really knows where it started Mm -hmm. exactly, but the, the running theory, I mean, is it was the, it, it, it was a slang term for being in the doldrums, for being just chronically sad or depressed, having the blues. And then this musical genre, which was danceable and like filled with intense emotion, also frequently reflected really, really blue, sad situations and scenarios. And yeah, some of it was like dirty blues, which is just like hypersexual, hypersexual. And some of it is like, this is how miserable my fucking life is. So like, I, it's there. I would, I would like to do something real quick. I know you've got some other points, but I, I thought of a little, uh, a game Please. that I think we can uniquely play right now with me having very little experience. I'm going to call out some songs and some artists and you tell me if they're blues or not. And I'm, I'm not going to call it random shit. This is stuff that I'm genuinely like, this is on the line for me and I want to understand better. Hit me. Otis Redding in the Nights. I would call that soul. Okay. Blues influenced, not blues. Okay. Sinner Man, Nina Simone. Oh, Sinner Man, where you gonna run to? Sinner Man. I'd have to look at the structure to see if it's like a formal blues, but I'd I'd probably say blues on that. 
anything by Tom Waits. Um, yeah, I think that's a blues. Okay. Again, I I don't I don't know the chords, but I think that's a blues. It's definitely blues influenced at the very least. Okay, okay. I already said early ACDC, and and I think, you know what? No, screw it. First album ACDC. She gave me the queen. She gave me the king. She was wheeling and dealing, just doing her thing. Ah. Not blues. However, they grew up on blues. They use the blues structures. Okay. Okay. This, I think this helps give an understanding, especially for people who aren't so uh, knowledgeable about, you know, music structure and like we're, we're, we're dancing around what the vibe of it is. And I think example is, you know, the, the most telling thing. I, I got one last, one last one for you. Uh, Michael McDonald's. And I guess that's why they call it the blues. <laughs> I don't consider that a blues. Yeah, that's fair. I don't either. It's just been playing in my head our entire conversation. <laughs> no, okay. I get that. I love that. I love that. Let me see if this will clear that. That ACDC line intrigues me. Um, and, and I think I have a way to kind of explain it. But to do that, I have to go back to Little Richard. Okay, please. Who is not a blues musician. Let's, let's keep that in mind. Little Richard was not a blues musician. He was a progenitor of rock and roll. Now, Little Richard came up playing Boogie Woogie. Boogie Woogie is a style of blues. It's a blues shuffle. It's a blues that's very much intended to dance to. And if you've ever heard, like, I'm trying to think how to put, like, the... That kind of riff. This would be easier if I had a guitar. Um if you've ever heard that, that's a boogie woogie. So that is a specific type of blues that, if I remember correctly, was kind of born out of like the Georgia, Alabama area. Um, and it was a dancing blues. Little Richard started off with that. And then Little Richard, along with Sister Rosetta Tharp, along with um along with Big Mama Thornton along with, uh, to a certain extent, Ray Charles, uh, not that much time later. Um, and Chuck Berry took Boogie Woogie and they sped it up. They started making it faster. They started playing it faster. And that is where you get rock and roll. Rock and roll, early rock and roll. We're talking Little Richard. We're talking Chuck Berry. Uh, we're talking Fats Domino. It ain't nothing but Boogie Woogie sped up. Mm. Now, people took that, people like Elvis um, would cover those songs, uh, and let's be frank, white them up, um, and they added the backbeat. There's also the backbeat. There's people who say rock and roll is nothing but blues with a backbeat, which is to say your rhythms in blues tend to be much more like kind of offset, less pulsing. Um, more emotive in rock and roll. It's a much steadier, like boom, ch, boom, ch, boom, ch, boom, kind of deal. It's much steadier. Um, so from there, you've got that early rock and roll, 
and you have that for a good while. And eventually you get people, you get the British invasion folks who grew up on Elvis and who through Elvis went back to Little Richard and Fats Domino. In the case of like the Rolling Stones, who you don't like very much. Um, <laughs> they went back to Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters, who were Chicago blues men. And they made this giant study of that electrified blues sound. But again, they whited it up. And then from there, you start getting things like ACDC, who played old Chuck Berry songs but then also just turned up the amplifiers and made it incredibly loud. Not quite as fast as some other people, but it was still, it's still three chords. It's still a backbeat. It's just turned up loud as fuck. And let's be frank, more aggressive. Mm -hmm. That's how you get that sound. That's, you know, all Led Zeppelin did was repurpose a bunch of old blues licks with really heavy distortion. You know, it's part of why the most, some of the most interesting Led Zeppelin work to me is honestly their acoustic stuff. Cause that's way more experimental. So that's how you get that with ACDC. I think, cause those guys were just big blues fans who played a bunch of rock and roll. And I love that. I think that, uh, that bridge you just constructed is is really illuminating for helping people understand. That's great. Yeah, I mean that's and and the thing is all of these and this actually leads me to the point about blues as the foundation for most of this music. Like rock music originated that way. That's how you get rock music. Jazz. You mentioned jazz. Jazz originated with people playing blues and getting frankly bored with the simplicity of it and wanting to complicate things. So they loved things like the improvisational style. They loved to take those old standards, those, those blues standards, and they just complicated them instead of doing, you know, your basic three chords, they started substituting chords and adding additional notes to those chords, making, instead of doing a major seven chord, they did major 11 flat five, which is a stupid chord that you can cut your finger on, <laughs> fingering it. Um, never mind. But the point is, like, that's what, that's what happened with jazz. It's people who basically were like, we love the blues, but we want to play more complicated shit. So they developed more complicated shit. Punk music was basically, if you look at any Ramones song, it's basically an old Chuck Berry riff played at lightning speed. They were not that creative. They just figured out what sounded good, and that shit sounded good. It's all of this music came out of this, like, very... Out of these blues structures, out of these blues chord progressions, out of the blues, out, out of the blues, you know, melodies and scales, you know, Black Sabbath came up with the opening riff to their like title song. That that's that's a tritone. That's a naturally occurring thing in the blues scale. That's nothing but Tony Iommi fucking around with a blues scale. And he went, oh, did I just like come up with the darkest sh sounding <laughs> shit in the world and invent heavy metal? Yeah. Yeah, I did. 
And and that's the biggest thing for me. Um, if we can lead into your last point, because I can I can speak into it here. I feel like personally, blues. I, I used the term progenitor genre describing it, and I, I really think that's the case. You know, it, it seems like the blues is the base of the tree of music, modern music at least, um, because you know, you, like. You can take so many genres. We've discussed rock and roll. We've we've then paired that to heavy metal, and you know through rock and roll you get all the uh, variations of rock and roll. You just talk to jazz as people being like, okay, this is boring. Let's keep doing it, but make it harder and harder. Um, you know what is R and B? rhythm and blues and R&B, you know, leading into rap and then like uh, pop spiraling out of there and, and being just the brightest, happiest, like bubblegum kind of blues. Um, and, and that is so fascinating to me because like I had to sit here and struggle when you brought up classical music as the, well, what is the difference? And I, I think blues as a genre stands as this dividing line on the one hand you've got classical music you've got you know tribal music you've got like all the stuff that we've been doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years musically and on the other side of the line you've got all of modern music all of just about anything you hear on a top 100 on the radio, no matter what the genre is. And that is so cool to me. Yeah. I mean, you, we've talked about the four chord song in pop music, um, the four chord structure, three of those four chords are the three chords in blues. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It just, it, and that's why I'm so mad about it being so just underthought of. Um, this is my last point. There's a belief that blues is a dead genre. You know, I I thought that myself until I was in high school and I had a conversation with, um, I don't know why I wrote friend here, with my ex's stepdad. <laughs> like my, my high school girlfriend at the time, I had a conversation with her stepdad when we were dating. Um, why the hell did I write friend? Um, but we had a conversation after I, when I was over at her house and he was like humming in with the mail and I saw that he was subscribed to a, several blues magazines. Um, he was a bass player who primarily played blues and jazz. And I had this whole conversation with him where he was just explaining to me about these blues festivals, about these contemporary artists and... You know, I was already a music nerd back then. I was very familiar with, you know, Ma Rainey and B.B. King and Albert King and Freddie King and Big Mama Thornton, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Robert Johnson, like all of the old greats, all of the people that the Rolling Stones and the Beatles used to talk about, all the people that Chuck Berry and Little Richard used to talk about. But then after this conversation, I looked into it. I started paying attention to acts like R.L. Burnside and Junior Kimbrough. Um, my entire inspiration for this topic was listening to this 21-year-old kid named Christone Kingfish Ingram, who is a blues guitarist 
from Mississippi. This man looks like he can murder you. Like, he is enormous. He is a huge, just giant man who swallows his guitar in his hands. Like, Hmm. it looks so tight. He makes it look like a toy. But he is an absolute wunderkind. He's incredible. His debut album came out last year. He'd been, like, hanging around YouTube and on the blues festival circuit since he was 15. And his first album came out last year, and every damn track on it is a banger. I highly recommend Chris Stone, Kingfish Ingram. His album is called Kingfish. It's on Spotify. Okay. The genre genre is segmented from the mainstream. But it's still alive. It's still doing stuff. It's still got its traditions and it's still innovating. You know, I've talked about like my interest in new and contemporary jazz on this podcast before, but I've never really talked about blues much. And that's a shame because it is it's the OG. And I think that it's not just because it's the OG, but also because it's fucking good. It's worth our time to at least acknowledge. I love that. And and anything that can, you know, lead into a recommendation of, of something new for people to follow. I feel like that's one of the best things we can do on LHR. So thank you so much for that, man. Yeah, absolutely. You, um, you ready to hate on a different kind of artist? Very different kind of artist. Very different feelings about that kind of artist. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's so. get started. For anybody who is still with us and is unfamiliar with who Greg Land is, uh, I'm going to explain that to you and why he is maybe the worst artist working comic books today. Um, mm. and, and so to start off, like I want to address the fact that I personally have shit all over Rob Liefeld more than once on this podcast. Yes. I stand by that. But I got to say, for all of his insane, anatomically impossible, extreme uh, 90s art that I absolutely hate to look at and love to give massive amounts of grief over, I can't sit here and say that Rob Liefeld didn't at least draw his own material. And so with that in mind... I got to say there's at least one artist who is still currently working in comic books in the industry whom I hate even more than Rob Liefeld. And that is American comics artist, Greg land. Mm -hmm. You sent this to me and (sighs) I remember Greg land. I wikied him and the start of that wiki page was it was hilarious, but we'll get into that. <laughs> you, you best believe. Um, you best believe there's going to be uh, an article or two linked out with this one, and and the best thing anybody can do if you're listening, if you're not in a car, just take a second and like look up Greg Land on a Google image search, and and you'll be so uh, enlightened as to what I'm talking about. Um, Greg Land is not nearly as well known as some of the bigger names in the comics industry. You know, John Romita Jr., Jim Lee, Frank Cho, Rob Liefeld. But over his relatively smaller career, Greg Land has become infamous for his trademark style, which is essentially plagiarism. 
Mm-hmm. A little bit of history. Uh, he's been working in the industry for over 20 years. Um, he got started in 1999 working for DC Comics and started on Birds of Prey. Um, he also has worked for CrossGen and Marvel Comics in various capacities and has always leaned into this like more realistic art style for his comics to try and explain it audibly. Like most comics are cartoony and, and you know, you, you can walk the line between very cartoony and, and very clearly like non-realistic looking to the hyper artistic and, and hyper realistic looking your Bill Sienkiewicz's, um, and then there's like, just there's this line of like, okay, we're going to draw it, but we're going to try to make it look as real as possible as, as photo realistic as possible. And that is the space Greg land thrives in. So mm-hmm. photorealistic land has been accused and admitted several times to sketching and tracing both real life models and porn stars from, uh, you know, various just pictures and then moving those over and directly recreating the poses and the facial expressions in his comics. The most egregious example of this is a famous image of Sue Storm from the Fantastic Four, the Invisible Girl, Invisible Woman, um, making a comically bizarre shocked expression that I am going to put on Twitter. (laughs) Um, and, and he's also gone on to draw in several cases, uh, faces of female porn stars who are very clearly performatively screaming in pleasure and then put that face on a comic book character who is supposed to be screaming in pain. So you wind up with so many cases where like a character is getting blown up and an explosion is like shooting black widow across the room. But you know, the look on her face looks exactly like somebody who is having an orgasm because that is what Greg land drew. I think tracing porn stars and putting them on comics is pretty gross in a few ways. It's absolutely nothing against the porn industry. And, you know, I'm not anti-sex worker by any stretch of the means, but, but to be like, to have your face stolen like that is upsetting in a couple of ways. More than that, from an artistic standpoint, it's lazy and, in the case of when you're using it for, for characters bodies, it directly propagates the stereotype that superhero bodies have to be unrealistically perfect for the male gaze. So that's, that's the first part. And, and, you know, I want to discuss and talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, so the thing that I'm coming to or, or thinking about in this is, um, not trying to be generous to Greg Land. I'm not. Um, this is more critical of the industry. I think I, I don't remember if I've mentioned reading this on the podcast before, but there's uh, there's a book by an academic named Sean Howe, uh, H-O-W-E, where he talked, I think it's called Marvel Comics, The Untold Story. 
Um, and it's literally just a history of Marvel Comics from like the pre from the days prior to it even being Marvel when I think it was called Atlas um, or its original founding of that company that eventually became Marvel all the way until like 2010, I mm-hmm. think. And I don't remember exact uh, examples. Uh, I do remember Greg Land getting mentioned in that book towards the end, but I don't remember exact examples, but I do know in throughout the entire history of Marvel, uh, there have been examples of artists who will either trace or reuse their own artwork time and again. Um, This is well documented and frankly, something that, some people caught it even when, even pre-internet, some people were able to catch it. In the age of the internet, it's become infinitely easier to catch, as have so many other forms of plagiarism. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that there is a, there's a tremendously troubled, ingrained culture in the comics industry of, A, putting... Possibly, you could possibly say that they're putting too much on their artists to try and create too much at any given moment. But there's also no accountability for this kind of thing. You know, Greg Land drew on Phoenix Song in like 2005. That's that's probably my favorite book that he drew on. Uh, and I don't love it because of his drawing. Yeah. Um, I love it because of the writing, but like... He's still doing shit now, though. And there's been plagiarism charges levied against him for so long. Yeah. Why isn't he drummed out of the industry? Because he, because he's affordable and because he turns his shit in on time. It is literally that simple a lot of the time. Yeah. And I, I think there's an argument to be made that, like, there is a market for this sort of thing. Of course there has to be. And, and yeah, to get into a little bit, Greg land, especially at Marvel has dri- has drawn on, you know, several big, important titles. He, he was the uh, artist for, I think almost all of ultimate fantastic four. He also did a lot of work on the ultimates. He had a long run of uncanny X-Men. Um, and, yeah, for for a, a a good chunk of comic book readers, this is at least if, if not outright acceptable, it's not unacceptable to the point of being upset over. Um, and I disagree with that pretty strongly. I mm-hmm. you know I was looking at a, a bunch of these Fantastic Four uh, Ultimate Fantastic Four issues. And I just find myself being like, you know what would be interesting? Instead of just tracing, um, you know, models and adult film actresses and doing that and and making it photorealistic looking, why wouldn't you just take some pictures? Why wouldn't you just hire somebody some model to be like, okay, you're going to be Reed Richards. You're going to be the face model for Reed Richards for 30 issues. We're going to, we're going to do that much. Like you can't tell me with modern day CGI and, and Photoshop capabilities, you wouldn't be able to 
just take a like take take a photo a literal photo um set and and make an issue that way now that is insanely expensive especially compared to you know just drawing and, and light boxing um a couple of specific faces and that's why we're not going to do it but from a pure artistic standpoint i i sat here and it made me wonder like like there are images where it's very clear greg land traced topher grace's face or ray liotta or like i i I haven't found any specific examples of porn stars um so i'm not going to cite any but like just find some B-list actors who got nothing better to do and be like, okay, you're going to be Scarlet Witch for this 12-issue run of Scarlet Witch and go. It costs it money. It does. It does. Absolutely. And and Greg Land costs a lot less money and he makes you a return on your investment. Yeah. And that's and honestly, that's what it comes down to. You know, there's... I sit here and I think about this and I go, all right, when they were creating John Constantine, uh, the character. No. They specifically made him look like Sting. Just did. Don't really know why. I guess they liked Sting. Um, I literally think the artists were like, I want him to look like Sting. And they were like, cool, let's make him look like Sting. Sure. Uh, as far as I know, they didn't trace photos of Sting. But they just took photos that they had, like from magazines and stuff, and used them as their character models. Okay, that we call homage. Yeah. Because as far as I know, I don't think Sting agreed to it. The difference is that with Greg Land, and, and there here's the thing, I, I, I'm anticipating an argument, because I think there is an argument, there, there are people who can say, why is it okay to use Sting as a model, and continue to use Sting as a model, because Constantine has been aging, and he looks like an aged Sting. Um... The argument is, why is it okay to use Sting uh, as a model for Constantine? But, again, porn magazines or Topher Grace for other characters are problematic. The issue is the pattern. It's the fact that with, with the work, the idea is the artist is supposed to be offering an original take on these characters. Do they offer original takes all the time? Hell no. Most artists have a vision of what they think Sue Storm looks like, what they think Phoenix looks like, what they think Black Widow looks like, Spider-Man, The Thing. Uh, And it's probably rooted in the comics that they grew up reading. That's a legit... We have a legitimate originality problem here that doesn't begin and end with Greg Land. But Greg Land is kind of the clearest example of what happens when it goes unchecked. Fool this man! Yeah, because, you know, I'm going to move on. But the other thing is, like, the idea of taking um, or even tracing, like, from a a, a photo isn't uncommon and, and in itself isn't actually plagiarism. But there's a difference between using a reference photo and even, like, using a reference photo of somebody famous and actually drawing it versus what land does, which is literally like trace over a light box. Yeah. 
And and frankly, that's cheaper than hiring the models and doing the photos. You're right. He could hire a model, take a bunch of photos, and use that and trace that. But that's more work. And that's going to eat into his bottom line. And the fact is, he's a contractor, so comics artists don't exactly get paid a ton as it is. Sure. And and so, you know what? We, we've, if nothing else, said there's a defensible reason for Greg Land doing doing this half of what Greg Land is infamous for. But but I want to wrap up by talking about the other stuff Greg Land is infamous for, which is literal plagiarism and stealing from both him, like copying artists. from himself and stealing from other artists. Um, you can take care... Which there is absolutely no justification for or real justifiable precedence no this is indefensible especially when it's somebody else you know you can take character poses from all across lands artwork and find that they are the exact same pose and the most hilarious example of this is an article i found called the many faces of greg lands ben Grimm." again looking at ultimate fan ultimate fantastic four ben Grimm is the thing the big chunky rock dude and it's just an article with a photo collage that shows Greg Land can only draw the thing's head a specific way. It is the exact same, like, opened mouth roaring from the side shot. And it's just dozens and dozens of times in different issues you see that is what the thing looks like. Mm-hmm. And... I want to wrap this up by discussing the latest example of Greg Land's plagiarism, which is also what brought him to the forefront of my mind. On September 1st, Australian comics art Australian comics artist Tristan Jones showed a series of images on Twitter. The first of which was the cover for Marvel Comics' upcoming Aliens Omnibus. And we're talking the Ridley Scott Alien, like the movie, the monster, Alien. Mm-hmm. Um, the cover of which was drawn by Greg Land. The other two pictures were alien drawings that Jones had drawn himself. And the final image shows with some Photoshop and um, with this thing where he highlights different like parts of the monster. It shows without a doubt that this is the exact same drawing greg land took tristan jones's drawing and just traced it and reversed it so that now the alien is looking the other way and this is all over the body this is the tail the only thing i was going to say is it it seemed like greg jones or uh, it seemed like greg land drew the head but then if you look through this twitter thread it turns out a third artist drew the head and greg jones stole Mm -hmm. it from him so, yeah. you know, Greg, Greg Land um, just literally ripped off this, uh, this design, copied this artwork literally. And uh, Tristan Jones's tweet straight up says, I've been Greg Landed. And this is unacceptable, both in the professional world as one comic artist to another to, to go and steal the guy's work. Um, and from Marvel comics as well. And, and, you know, I've been, this, this was a week ago as of time of recording, I haven't seen Marvel so much as even really issue a statement about it. Like this is shitty and unprofessional during the best of times, but then 
you find out Tristan Jones is having a real hard time getting work as a comics artist. The guy's having to take a second job because of COVID he lost. Mm -hmm. Like he was the guy who drew a bunch of aliens comics before Marvel bought the property. And since then, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they bought the the property and Tristan Jones has been pushed out only to then turn around and see his literal artwork with someone else's name on it on, you know, this high profile Marvel book. It's, it's shameful. There's no other word for it. It's shameful by Greg land and it's shameful by Marvel comics. And it's not the only time Greg land has done this. So. Yeah. I, and I'll, I'll link to the both articles uh, that you mentioned in the show notes, Andy, I'm looking at these uh, photos, these Tristan Jones photos versus the Greg land photos right now. And I'm not an art guy. I'm not. Which I say to point out, I would have never noticed this. I could have probably read, like, I, I don't get me wrong, I never really kept up on Aliens comics. But if I owned the Dark Horse stuff, or these other drawings, and then saw these Greg Land ones, to me... And I'm a complete layman when it comes to visual art. I would not have noticed sure. this. I'm I'm completely upfront. Um, seeing it highlighted and pointed out makes it really clear. And the thing that just I think the thing that infuriates me the most with this particular story is. At this point, Marvel have already Marvel have already printed up what they're going to print up. They've already shipped out what they're going to ship out. Um, comics are a very low margin industry. At this point, it is the most cost effective solution for Marvel is honestly just to lay low until this blows over and then keep on keeping on. Greg Land is a name with some people. He is. Not every comics fan is in is in the shit with this, is keeping up with the news about all of this. Some people just walk in and buy their comics. Yeah. Or they buy or or fuck, I mean, as the as trade paperbacks become a thing, as actual booksellers become how more and more people are consuming their comics. Hi, hello. That's how I consume mine. Um, via trades, people aren't going to worry about it, really, because they're not buying monthlies. What are they going to do? Not subscribe to their monthlies? The monthlies aren't what are selling in the first place. This is a collected omnibus anyway. Shut up and take my money. I hate to always come back, Andrew. <laughs> to how do we hold the powerful accountable because at the end of the day greg land is just some schlubby 56 year old dude who's cobbling together his income from his comic stuff the nothing he gets on royalties and i think i'm pretty sure like most um comic comic artists drawing today he probably also does work in like advertising or graphic design 
So I'm sure he's cobbling together a pretty decent existence with that. But he will get away with this. And he will do it again. Greg Landed is officially a verb enough. And he still sells the books. He's still Because you're still going to get people buying old trade paperbacks of Phoenix Endsong. Or... I, get, I don't know if people are still buying Ultimate stuff or Marauders or any of the other stuff that he's worked on that, you know, still sells in trade. Uh, you know, that X-Men stuff, people are never going to not buy those. They're not. He's always going to be marketable because of that. Right. And, and yeah, the, you're absolutely right. Greg Land isn't going away. He hasn't for 20 years. It It would take a crime of a greater proportion it, it would take and and honestly sometimes this doesn't even happen but it would take him it, w- it would take it being revealed that he has sexually assaulted somebody or that he you know he would need to that doesn't do shit well, right i know but like to actually even try to make a dent um in greg land you it, it would take something like this and so i really i, I feel like really the only thing you I, the only thing I can do as a guy yelling at you listener about why Greg Land is the worst artist in comics is point out better examples. You know, I, I truly hope that if nothing else, some comics company uh, goes to Tristan Jones and is like, Hey, we think your art's great. We were horrified to learn about your situation. Hey, come draw this thing for us. That would be great. Um, you know, there is a guy who, um, is a much, 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 much less well-known artist, but I think is phenomenal. And that is an artist named Asad Ribic. Uh, he's a Croatian comic book artist. He did a shit ton of Thor. He did the 2015 Secret Wars. And and this guy is amazing. Like his artwork looks like it's painted on the page. It doesn't look like it's drawn. It's phenomenal. But, you know, just just calling out like, your Chris Ankas, your Greg Capullos, these people who are mm. well-respected comic books artists who don't literally go out and trace a picture of somebody else's work and then try to pass it off. Um, there's absolutely no reason why we can't have more of these guys. Your your Tim Sales, your your uh, your. I'm going to, on Twitter, link with art some of my favorite comics artists. And I think that's probably the most effective thing that can be done um, to combat Greg Land. (laughs) And so that is what I'll do. And I'm just going to say shit on Marvel and tell them not to hire Greg Land for shit. I like it. Like flat out plagiarism is plagiarism and and the problem is plagiarism is one of those things that so many people say it's a victimless crime like legitimately i used to get this when i was a teacher i get people who would say like plagiarism doesn't hurt anybody you know okay um we can point to jones here who is missing out on work that he deserves to get he's not going to get the royalty he deserves on these books Pointing out the difference, and, and and I'm the guy who sat who who sat here and said like, "Hey, pirate books by authors you don't like." Um, 
pirate Greg Land's books, please. If you want, if you want to copy some of his stuff, pirate his books. I highly recommend it. It's great. <laughs> um, but don't give money for his shit. Let there be consequences to this. Yes, we can tweet, and we should tweet. Tweeting is great. That's fun. It's not the only thing, though. Vote with your dollars. Absolutely, man. And maybe throw eggs at him if you see him at Comic-Con. N- nothing, like, just, just not to disparage anybody from their looks, but he has a very fucking eggable face. So. Mm. Yeah. Smirking. So bastard. with that. Shall we go on to our question? With that, Greg Land, worst, uh, worst artist in comics, worst artist in comics. Let's go on to the question. I'm not mad about that. You want to read this or should uh, I? I? I conjured it up, so I will go ahead and read it. This comes to us, as usual, from the delightful relationships.txt. And this one is fun. <laughs> mm. I just want to start no by shit. saying that I love her, my girlfriend. We met one year ago at a friend's party, and then before long, we started dating. Around two or three months ago, we decided to take the relationship to the next level and move in together. I know it was quick, but moving in let us save money on rent. We've always gotten on really well and haven't had any major arguments or issues. Ever since the COVID lockdown started, things haven't been the same. She lost her job at the start of COVID for the first month, and everything was fine. But recently, she's been having to kill more and more time at home. She's always been into Bionicle and Lego. And I guess I've always been cool with that. But first things have just gotten worse. Initially, she just built some sets she had at her parents. Recently, though, she's been binge-watching the Bionicle movie for hours a day and playing with toys like a child. And now, when money is tight, she spends $500 on Bionicles. I'm starting to find her less and less attractive due to this childish and obsessive behavior. How can I bring this up with her? I really don't want to ruin things between us, but she's becoming increasingly distant and I don't know what to do. So I have an idea of a name situation. Oh, go here. ahead. Um, Andy, you're a Parks and Rec fan, right? Yes. Yes. Do you remember when Ben Wyatt gets fired yep. and creates an entire game? And dolls and just kind of goes into a very deep depression. I think we've got Ben Wyatt. I think this is Ben Wyatt, which means the question asker is, of course, Leslie Nope. Yes. And and I'm gonna let you speak, but but since we've we've already said it, and this was really my big funny joke for this question, sounds like your girlfriend has depression, dog. Like go ahead, Alex. I mean, yeah. Um, Leslie, hi. How are you? Are you ready? Yes. No, babe. Are you ready? Yes. I'm going to start off by saying it is not that you are without points on this. You are. There is some, I mean, it is definitely it definitely makes sense that when your money is tight when you're a single income household and your partner spends hundreds of dollars on bionicles that's a problem and that's a problem that needs to be addressed i'm not saying there's an issue with that i do think that 
there does need to be some discussion of how to deal with a depressed partner. The part of this question that bothers me the most, bothers me even more than what Ben Wyatt is doing, Leslie, uh, is you're stating, I'm starting to find her less and less attractive due to this childish and obsessive behavior. Leslie, what do you know about neuroatypicality? What do you know about depression? And why are you sitting here worrying about how attracted you are to your partner when your partner is clearly going through severe depression and is disassociating in a really, really intense way? I always recommend therapy. I think therapy is great. Um, I will state that I have seen some... I don't know what your employment situation is. Um, not every employer gives this, but if you happen to have an EAN, um, you might maybe be able to see if your, your employee assistance network can provide some counseling to your girlfriend. Um, it might not be possible because you're not married, but... It's worth asking. And if, if you do have an EAN, if you don't have an EAN, finding counseling services at a discount can be helpful. Um, that's, all, that's always tricky. We've obviously got some resources available on our website under the resources page. Lovehaterelationship.net, everybody. Um, so that, those, are, those are the good steps. Those are the probably good places to start you need to not be worrying about how your girlfriend's attractiveness is affected with you. You you, you do need to address the practical points. $500 on Bionicles when money is tight, that's a problem. If she's re-watching the Bionicle movies for hours and playing with toys and not doing anything else, like, is not say, looking for a new job or trying to find some ways to assist with the household or the household expenses. Like, you two need to have a mutual conversation about these issues. And you need to come at it from a place of, my partner is severely depressed and is coping with things that bring her... I don't know, some kind of sense of wonder, some escapism in a bad place. We escape because we have nothing else. The thing you can give her is other options beyond escape, like support, like structure, like kindness, like love and consideration, and maybe like therapy. So that's that's where I'm starting at Uh between Leslie and Ben. Andy, where are you at? Yeah, I mean, very much the same. I uh, I want to help Leslie figure out a, a way to get Ben out of this slump, but the most important thing I was going to bring to this was to highlight Leslie. It, it really sounds like Ben is having a massive depressive episode and coping with it the only way that they've decided how and i don't know that you're recognizing it um 
the the watching the same movies every day over and over is what really tipped that off in my mind and of course of course it is reasonable to ha- sit sit bend down and have a hard conversation about look i understand this brings you joy and comfort and you cannot be going out and spending $500 getting old bionicle kits. Um, I want to, I, 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 my instinct is to say, you know, you got to help Ben find a renewed sense of purpose that can be through looking through jobs that can be through like, I, I don't know what your work situation is. Leslie doesn't go into it. I don't know if Leslie is, uh, going into a nine to five office every day, which is something you and I had to do throughout the entirety of the pandemic. So it is reasonable. Yeah. Still right. Doing it. Um, so, you know, it's not clear if Leslie is home alone or if Ben is home alone with their own devices all day, I would, I would suggest really lean into while you don't have a job, if nothing else than to keep you busy, try to help out around the apartment, given how big or small your apartment might be, that might buy you a half of a week before it's like, okay, I literally cannot clean anything else. Time to go back into my depressive hole. Um, but you know, it, it, it can be as simple as like, okay, we're going to apply to, three to five jobs in a day or, or whatever the number is. And you offer yourself up as a helpful resource. You offer yourself up as comfort. You admitted that this was a, this is a relatively short relationship. This is a like 15 month long relationship, but you agreed to sign a lease and you up until this point really were committed and interested enough in Ben that you were okay moving in together. It it really reflects poorly on Leslie to be sitting there being like, I'm really losing my attraction for my partner because they're in the middle of a depressive episode. And so that I agree. That's something Leslie needs to get right with himself um or themselves i don't think actually a gender is stated there um leslie needs to get right with leslie's self so that leslie can be the best help for ben we're all in agreement ben can't be going out on ebay and spending hundreds of dollars on bionicles um no but the the behavior needs to be treated gently and with love and appreciation with a mind for we're going to get you back on your feet. Here's how we're going to do that. I am going to help you. It is my pleasure to help you. I'm going to help you. You also need to be working on this. Yeah. You know, Leslie, you ask at the end of this, how can you bring this up with Ben? You don't want to ruin things, but Ben is becoming distant and you don't know what to do. You bring it up kindly. You do. And you can be kind and firm and direct. You can be compassionate and not... You can be compassionate without being indulgent 
of actions that cannot continue for sheer just like math's sake like you can do both it's a complicated thing um if we assume leslie that you are I i don't like to assume gender i don't but the fact that you're the fact that you mentioned attractiveness where you did makes me kind of read you as a dude, Leslie, and maybe not a dude who's in touch with your more compassionate side. It is hard to navigate going, OK, you're in a bad place and you need to come out of it and I need you to come out of it and do it nicely yeah. like we're like. Andy, you're a dude. You weren't programmed for that, were you? I certainly <laughs> no, wasn't. Yeah. And you know what? Even if you're not a dude, Leslie, like, you might just not have that background. You might not, That might have never been modeled for you, compassionately helping someone through a dark period of time. But that's what you got to do. Look up the research. Look, you can Google right now ways to support my depressed partner and Google will give you a million things. A lot of them are going to say the same stuff. They really are. They're going to be having patience. They're going to be listening to them. They're going to be making sure that they know that you are still loved or that they are still loved. Um, creating small goals to try and help them progress if the depression is based off of a life event like losing a job. Like, you read 20 of those articles, you're going to get, like, probably 120 ideas, but more, th- but but probably t- at least 50 of them are all the same stuff. I, that's That math is way off. You're going to get, like, Maybe a dozen things that are just repeated in article after article after article. And those are the things you need to do. A lot of them are the things I just said. You be kind to your partner. You love her. You don't have to play Cones of Dunsparce. You don't have to play with the Bionicles. Maybe maybe she gets a Bionicle budget. I don't know, dude. But the point is, you got to be nice. And to give a little uh, harsh but pragmatic motivation to being nice, even beyond this is your girlfriend, uh, if you signed a lease three months ago and money's tight, I bet you can't afford to buy out of that, which means you've got about nine months together uh, on average before there is any change in living situation. So, Leslie, it is pragmatically in your best interest to help Ben. Did I say Ben? I'm getting these mixed up. Leslie, it is pragmatically in your best interest to help Ben through this time. And you're valid in going, Hey, this isn't okay. You're not valid in this is making me lose attraction for you. And we hope that, you know, this situation works out. We're going to post this on relationship.txt uh, as always, but you know, it, we, we don't get as much feedback on these than as in, in person messages. So that's been love, hate relationship. If you have a uh, relationship question that you want our unqualified advice for, 
Um, as Alex mentioned, we have a resource page if it is somebody struggling with depression or anything like that. But if it's uh, if it's a situation where somebody is just causing you a grievance or you are butting heads with somebody, uh, we would love to take your questions and you can send those into love, hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, and you can also follow us there. No, wait. You can follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. I got to start using my notes <laughs> for this again. Um, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes or just to hear about the random ass crap that we come across. You want to just like blast tweet Greg land on the, on, on the account, I Andy? Like, I think can... I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This is going to be fun. Follow us there to see Andy blast tweeting Greg land and me. I don't know. Maybe I'll post a bunch of blues clips. Um, God. Uh, I've fallen apart in the last few okay, seconds. buddy. If you want to follow me, Andy Bowell, uh, you can do so by looking for JovoCop213 on Twitter. Um, and I also have a film podcast where we don't talk about um, the, the parts of actors' bodies that we want to go see a movie for, but instead we review old cult films and you know make fun of them and, and, and analyze them. And I do that with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. Again, that is cult fiction, and you can find that everywhere Alex said you can find LHR. That's right. I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And Andy, <laughs> you should set up, your, you, sh- you should mention your TikTok because you actually posted one. Yes, finally. fair enough. I am Andy Bowell 13 on TikTok. And I would love for you to come see uh, what is pouring out of my brain pan. Most of it's Jekyll Mostly. and Hyde. We love it. We love y'all. As always, please tell your enemies. <laughs> yeah, shit. I got to add a new thing to my outro. It's been so long. 